Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're talking about simple complexity, our interview with William Donaldson. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great, Ron. Can't wait to talk about this topic, one of my favorites. Real quick shout out, Ed. Have to get this in. Happy birthday, Mr. Paul O'Byrne. Ah. I think you would have been 66. Okay, so, rest in peace. Just, All right, yes, thanks, Ron. Absolutely. Um, well, let's uh, let's read Dr. William Donaldson in. He has over 35 years of experience and has been a CEO of eight companies and helped start dozens of companies. Willie is the founder and president of Strategic Venture Planning, a management consulting firm that assists boards, investors, families, and senior management teams to maximize results. Willie, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, Ron and Ed, it's just a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for doing this. You know, I have to give a shout out to Mark Gandy because he interviewed you on his show, CFO Bookshelf, on April 30th. And Willie, I have to tell you, I was driving to the airport and it was really early morning and I'm and I'm listening to you talk with Mark and I'm like, I finally get systems thinking. This guy can put it in terms that you can understand it. It's uh, I just thought the interview was absolutely brilliant. So before we get into your book and how you got into systems thinking, which I'm really curious about, what's your background? So I'm uh, trained as an industrial engineer. And um, interestingly enough, I, I, my father was an aeronautical engineer, and I was absolutely convinced that's what I was going to do. And I went to school for aeronautical engineering, and within a semester, I'd switched to industrial. Um, and by the time I was done, I switched to business and um, then just... Um, the, the big moment for me came, gentlemen, I was 26 years old. My father was a classic end-stage entrepreneur um, and hadn't really thought about what comes next. You, you know the type. And he got very, very sick. And he called me and said, I've got to go in the hospital in four weeks. What am I going to do? And so at age 26, I quit my job and was now, poof, CEO of, of two companies, an $8 million government contractor and a $6 million software company. And that was a, a wake-up call, shall we say. And, the, and the, the biggest thing and the best advice I could give your listeners is go find mentors and, and people who are smarter than you and always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and will put it on you. And, and that's why I was just very lucky to have a couple that helped me get where I needed to go and, and kept me on the straight and narrow. Yeah, so interesting that you have an engineering background. We we have another colleague who we just lost earlier this year as well, and he was an engineer, and and he it just it was so fascinating talking to him because they just have a different way of looking at things, and they use a different language, obviously, than yes. I'm a recovering CPA, basically, and I just learned so much from him over the years. So that's that's really fascinating. And so your dad got you basically into systems thinking then. 
He did. And, and so he gave me uh, and a little background on my dad. He was ran the, the gas dynamics labs, as they were called, the wind tunnels at the forerunner of NASA, the National wow. Advisory Council on, Aer- on Aeronautics. And obviously, NASA was into systems. And he gave me the early books on systems thinking before I was even in high school. And I've often wondered if that was for enlightenment or punishment. I, <laughs> you know, but I just started viewing the world through the lens of system thinking and using that language. And I will tell you, in high school, people thought I was just strange as hell. Right? Bet, it was like, wow. Bet. And I thought for sure when I got to university and college that people would know what I was talking about. And I only found two people uh, at North Carolina State that even had a clue. And then when I transitioned to business, I thought for sure people are going to view a business as a, a system. And boy, was I surprised. So um, it, it just has been a great, in my mind, has been a large part of my success is thinking about the world in systems, viewing um, the world that way, using the lens and language. Um, you know, that's how I, I came to, to write the book. I had a number of investors and board members and very, very prominent people said, you just put the pieces together very differently and talk about things differently than we've heard before, you should write a book. And that's why I did. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, it's funny you bring that up, Willie, about uh, college. I can't ever remember hearing systems thinking in, in my college education, ever. No. Well, it's funny. C. West Churchman wrote a book about systems thinking years ago uh, called System, The Systems Approach and Its Enemies. And the two top enemies of systems thinking are politics and academics, academics. <laughs> right? Because we all love our swim lanes and we love to keep the parts separate um, and, and not merge them. Right. And, and the book that you published in 2017 is Simple Complexity, a management yep. book for the rest of us. And yeah. boy, is that true. Great, great <laughs> subtitle, A Guide to Systems Thinking. And uh, one of the early quotes in there, and I have to ask you about this guy because I don't know who he is, Tom Northup, but he says, all organizations are perfectly designed to get the results they are now getting. Wow. That should slap every leader right in the face, right out of the gate. It's funny you should mention that because that's usually how I get thrown out of consulting (laughs) engagements. I put that up. I put up the canonical model and I say, here are the inputs, time, people, and money, the only three things you've got to manage into this black box called your system, your company, and outcome products and services. And I'd say, you're the system architect, so if it's messed up, look in the mirror. <laughs> and then I, that's I'm usually my taillights are facing their headquarters and I'm driving <laughs> the other direction because most CEOs don't want to do this. Or they, you know, we talked about Peter Senge's great book um, years ago. I can't tell you how many CEOs read that and it was gnarly to get through, but then they just gave it to their director of HR and said, go build me a learning organization. They, they didn't take the advice on board. and you just have to look in the mirror and, and the, the, as the system architect, the CEO has to take responsibility and, and very few know about systems. And then they don't typically use the systems thinking as a guiding sort of lens and, and tool. Willie, who was Tom Northup? You know, he, I forget his actual background. I went looking for that quote because we actually used it in the American Management Association back in the 80s. Um, and he was, a, I believe, a CEO of, of a company, but I went looking for that who had originated that quote because I'd heard it for years, and that was what I found. Okay. So you describe a system as, like you said, time, people, and money, 
those inputs and then you're converting them to outputs or what systems mm-hmm. thinkers call throughputs. Right. Um, and then you talk about this, how systems thinking derives its power from the philosophic concept of holism. Can you explain that? Absolutely. You know, as humans, we inevitably want to f- finish the story. If we just give somebody the parts and there's the, the philosophic basis is hermeneutics, which is a wonderful and terrible uh, German word of which there are so many, <laughs> but it's just people are going to complete the circle, the hermeneutic circle. Um, and if you go around that more and more times, you get more and more of an understanding. So if you bring somebody into your company and they're an accountant and you only put them down and all they're looking at is accounting, they're going to complete the story about sales. They're going to complete the story about operations. And so if you don't give them the, the, holis- the holistic picture, the, the whole they're going to be tipped over. And, and that ties directly into another concept I write about of bounded rationality from Herbert Simon. Just this, once I think the boundaries around me of accounting are real, which they're not, I start optimizing accounting. And that may not be best for, for total system throughput. Right. You know, that hermeneutic circle, when you talk, when you give the analogy about reading a book and you're not going to see the whole thing until you've read the whole thing, and of course, go back and reading it maybe a second or third time and picking up even more. We're just seeing our little part until mm-hmm. we see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful analogy. Yes. And, and I'll give you an example. I was in a, in a presentation last week with a very you know, uh, large company. And as the CFO is presenting her information about where she thinks the, the world is going to be, I turn around to basically the VP of sales and he's just shaking his head. And it's like, have you two ever met? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they're they're just often the CFO. You know, I have a, I think I use the quote in the book as well. The the wonderful Italian parable of the the paper will not refuse the ink. Right. So the CFO can print, <laughs> print all those numbers, but if the sales guy or gal doesn't believe those, you're not going to get them. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that business is taught in such a reductionist way, like some type of Newtonian or mechanical principles, mm-hmm. uh, trying, uh, trying to optimize each silo in a business. Do, do you think, I blame cost accounting for some of this. Mm-hmm. Do, have you ever run into cost accountants? Because they tend to put everything into silos and, you know, profit per division or profit per product even is... It is really, it, it it just violates systems thinking, doesn't it? It absolutely does, and and that's one of the dangers because the other thing we layer on top of cost accounting is incentives to hit those numbers, and the rat's going to always go for the cheese in the maze, right? So they're going to follow those numbers, and it just becomes a a self licking ice cream cone, unfortunately. Yeah. Really good point. And, and then I love how you have throughout the book, you, you have these behold and beware. <laughs> and, and they're really good. Um, there's a lot of really good ones. Um, but you point out there are no separate systems. Yeah. Talk about that. There are no separate systems. Well, and that's what Sotero is, is. And it goes back to the paradox I talk about you cannot deal with the whole. You can't just take the, the company as a whole and deal with it all as one. So we have to break it down 
paradoxically into its component parts, but the problem is we lose sight of the fact that those distinctions that we make and those breakdowns we make are completely a fiction of our own mind. There are no boundaries between any of the departments, between any of the, the actions, they're all integrated. Mark Gandy and, uh, and others talk about um, you know, playing chess with rubber bands around all the players. You have to know that if I move this player, it's gonna pull other people inexorably in another direction. And we just, we lose sight of that. Yeah, that, that's, wow, in so many dimensions too, whether you're introducing technology or, or whatever, yes. we, we just think we can optimize each little part and the, you, you, could, you can't do that with the human body, but somehow <laughs> we think we can do it with a, you know, a business. Well, and that's part of the, why I think system thinking hasn't been really adopted. One, people don't know about it, but two, it's far easier when your voicemail box is full and you're in the mailbox just to address what you can and not have to worry about sales and everything else. It's harder to bring all those pieces together. But if you don't, you're going to pay for that inefficiency in friction throughout the system. Yeah. Well, Willie, this is great. I knew it would be flying by. So folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Please check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe, get our bonus shows. That's at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Be kind to your mind. Hire one. Check their work out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Ron, we talk a lot about business opportunities. Well, now a great one has become our sponsor, bookskeepingfranchise.com, bookskeeping with an X. That's right, Ed. If you are interested in becoming part of the $4.2 billion bookkeeping industry for a franchise fee of just under $20,000, visit www.bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping comes with full training, plus marketing and technical support, and even staffing. Visit the website or call 855-935-2669. Franchise opportunity not available in all states. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking with William Donaldson, author of Simple Complexity, a management book for the rest of us, a guide to systems thinking. And Willie, my first question for you is, I think a simple one, why the underscore between simple and complexity? Great question. And a lot of people miss it. So I, I give you, you know, I'm going to give you extra credit for that. Um, and that's just, you have to tie the two together. One, we talked about the fact that the, the complex is too complex. You have to break it down. But if you break it down and parse it and don't remember it's connected, it's you're going to get into all of these really bad habits, the, the bounded rationality, et cetera. So it's the fact that you have to make it simple and give simple mental models for people to remember, but you have to always remember it's tied to that complexity and you can't think that it's as simple as you just made it. You know, I, I love George E.P. Box's quote about, right, all models are wrong, some are useful. And so the question is, how wrong does it have to be before it stops being useful? And that's you just want people to stop and say, okay, this simplification works for a while, but let me go really dig into the complexity and look at the other connections and what else in the second and third order effects. I was exposed very early in my career to the 7S model of the mm -hmm. McKinsey framework, although it was a modified model that pulled out shared vision and strategy to the, the left-hand side of the model. And I don't know if you've ever seen that version yes. of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the mantra for that was look left. You know, the answer, the answers are look left. It's not in the, the systems bubble, but it's on the left hand side. And this is a quote from your book. You say, finally, make sure that your vision, mission, values and actions and investment remain in alignment with your true purpose as you cascade them down the enterprise. And what, what I wanted to share with you a, a tool that I have used and just to see if it would get your reaction to it. Oftentimes when I, when I would find that there would be conversations around things that seem to be in conflict with mission, vision, values, my, what I would ask is help me understand how this decision that you've just made is in alignment with X, the value, whatever, the value of honesty, which, you know, everybody has, right? <laughs> so, um, and and I, I, I call it the nuclear option because when you ask it, you have to genuinely be seeking a connection point. You can't be using it as a, as a gotcha. Uh, first of all, does that make sense to you? And as have you heard about that, that kind of thing? Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what the values and, and those documents and, and statements should do. As I talk about in the book about that's the, the keel in the water. And if everybody gets those and there's clarity around them, that is what you, makes you able to put much more sail on top to be able to sail harder, go faster. But if you don't live those values, if you're not, don't have clarity around those things, your keel's not very deep, you can't do much with it and you can get very easily blown off course. So you're absolutely spot on. And I'll tell you an interesting story about that. I went on Enron's website the day they filed for bankruptcy and pulled down their statement of values. And what do you think was on there? Yep transparency, honesty, integrity, this stuff's easy to write about, mm -hmm. right? You have to, you have to walk it, you have to live it, you have to, to embody it all day long, because the system is always on, people are always looking at you, and any violation is going to be a cynicism engine. 
Well, we are cut from the same cloth because I did the same thing when Silicon Valley Bank went down and <laughs> and downloaded their governance score. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> now, what I wonder is, did at the top of it, did it say this is a comedy? Right? <laughs> right? For oh, your my. leading pleasure? <laughs> Just, just really, truly unbelievable. Um, it is. Next thing I wanted to ask you about is is a is a conflict that's been in my mind with regard to systems thinking for a while. And you know, we talk about and you talk about even designing the system, um, and you say systems exhibit a powerful dynamic of creating properties that emerge from the systems that are not elemental and arise from interactions and purpose. And then I want to square that with a, a quote that is, is from the economist F. A. Hayek, who says the curious task of economics is to demonstrate how little a man knows about what he can imagine he can design, right? So this, I think there's this tension, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about this, this tension between design and emergent order. Do we yeah. design it or does it emerge or what, like? <laughs> well, it's, you know, we talk about in systems thinking both and. It is right. both and. You can't just let it be random, right? That's, that's just Brownian motion, right? You, and you can let that happen, or you can try to control it, but you have to understand any construct you put around it is just, it's, I forget the, the name of the gentleman who wrote, the map is not the territory, right? It, it gives you a good guide, but you cannot believe it is gospel. And so you have to always both and both the, the construct you came up with is important, but you have to be sensitive to those emergent properties and the constantly shifting dynamics. That's why I talk about that, that dynamic um, equilibrium that you're fighting so hard to get where you're not locking things down so hard you can't change, but you're also not just letting everything change at, at random. Yeah, because we do hear a lot of contradictions, well, or apparent contradictions, they're really not, is, you know, your strategy needs to be flexible, but it needs to be clear. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, you can, you can do all the strategizing you want, the, the day you finalize it, it's going to be wrong, something in it is wrong. And that's what, that's why people don't like systems thinking. I don't, it's just, it's, it gets pushed into the too hard column. My argument is, okay, yes, it's harder to do things this way, but you're going to be dealing with that randomness and that, that ambiguity anyway. So you might as well get used to it, lean into it, embrace it. Yeah, that great American philosopher, Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, the, the next thing I want to ask you about is uh, th this this notion of of context, I, and we Ron and I talk about pricing. Pricing requires context. This is one of the reasons why we talk about offering choices to people because it, you create your own context. Mm -hmm. But context is such an important point. Um, I heard about an an interesting experiment that I'd be curious if you've heard. Of, and I can't remember. I know the woman's first name is Catherine, and she did this thing where she had pairs of people tap out familiar tunes to people like they would just have to, they would just have to tap like jingle bells but you could only tap it on the table and <laughs> then they would ask the person who did the tapping what what's what's the percent chance that the person that you were tapping to kn knows the tune that you're doing and it's like they like 70 percent. it's like oh yeah they they definitely got it 70 percent of them and then <laughs> but nobody nobody understands what the tapping is at all right <laughs> because it's you you don't have the context of the tone in music right. so i like to equate that talk a little bit about the importance of context and how that fits in 
Well, it's absolutely critical because if, if you, you know, the example I used just at last week is, you know, imagine somebody said, hey, we've got to go paint a barn. And you say that to somebody who doesn't know what paint is, doesn't know what a barn is, doesn't know what a brush is, doesn't know what a roller is. They're just going to look at you like you're from some other planet, right? So unless you have the context that that's what a barn looks like and you're actually putting this coat over top of it, you'll be completely lost. And, and there's a great article that was written about this. Um, and John Medina from Brain Rules does a t wonderful um, YouTube video on it. It's just he, he reads that paragraph with his assistant to people. And I use it with my kids all the time in, in class. Um, and they have no idea what those two gentlemen are talking about. None. And then you just reveal the, the 10 words about what it's about. And it's like light bulb goes on. So, but we just think how often managers do that. Or, you know, somebody from sales comes in and says, hey, the Fragistrat's not working properly and you need to do this and that. And the person just completely has no idea what you're talking about because it's a completely different realm that they've ever, than they've ever been a part of. But, but I write about it in the book. Again, we tend, managers tend to, to want to be efficient. And the question is not that. Are you effective? Are you getting through to anybody? And we well, just don't stop. Well, welcome to what we call on this program the effing debate, the difference between <laughs> effectiveness and efficiency. Right? Yeah, it, it is a big, big difference. Well, because and what we what we find is that there's unfortunately a cult of efficiency in yes. business. It's a, it's yep. a, it, and the lean six sigma guru ninja turtle black belt people, <laughs> they, they, they are a cult. Yes, they are. They are absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll give you an, well, an example from the book about context is, you know, I was called into a very large government contractor. The board member said they thought they were struggling with project management. There's a pretty simple concept, right? It's not all that difficult. And in a government contractor, you better be good at that. Um, so I asked the C-suite, what's the, what's the problem with project management? Before I could even finish that sentence, somebody said, well, it's not a problem with project management. It's with prod, prod, um uh, program management. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Somebody else said they're the same thing. Then somebody said, no, they're not. So I had them stop and just write down, draw a picture individually of what project management was at that organization, seven different mental models. So now you got people doing things in different contexts, different language, and it's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I believe it was Plato. All wisdom begins with a definition of terms. So... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're really got to say, well, Willie, this has been great, but we're up against our break. I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do have our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to the show commercial free and listen to our bonus episodes. At a certain level, if you sponsor us, you get a shout out like Stan Eskison did with, with New Age Neuro. You'll be, your patients will be grateful. Your CPA will be amazed. Check him out at newageneuro.com. And now a word from our sponsor. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about systems thinking with William Donaldson. And Willie, I, I, I love what you say. You know, Ed and I are, uh, do a lot of work with uh, professional firms. And one of the mantras from everybody we hear at conferences, consultants to professional firms, they all say the same thing. We've got to make the system predictable and repeatable. That way it can scale. And you say it's a worthy goal, but it's also a fool's errand. Why? Well, because the outside world that you're setting that model up to and that system up to, to to deliver to is constantly changing. And so is the internal model. People are aging and your your technology is aging. So as much as we want to lock it down forever and ever and ever, you have to be changing. The products change, services change, customers change, and we just have to, to go back. But people don't like change. And that's what I talk about. You have to prepare people to change constantly. And I think system thinking really helps them with that because you say we have to, to make sure the system is aligned with the outside world and make them conscious of that whole, you know, that holism and that they need to, to look at. Yeah. It's almost like a false sense of control. They want that predictability and repeatability right. and everything. Um, well, and, and it's back to the, the swim lanes in business schools. We tell people, go out and, yay, verily, make sales efficient, make accounting efficient, make, all right, but what about the whole? <laughs> Is that the most efficient whole? Right, right. Well, one of the very interesting chapters I found was chapter six, where you were talking about governance, and you said it's often the most opaque and mysterious element of the of the system and it tends to emerge only in times of crisis can you talk about governance because this was really a fascinating discussion in the book absolutely so you know a lot of people just dismiss the board and say well it's just up there i can't do anything about it but remember they have the ultimate authority if they are a board of directors so they can change your life in a heartbeat and that's where, uh, again, if you start to drift away from that element and there's not a, a clarity and alignment, all of a sudden it can emerge when 
we're not delivering earnings, something's happened. And this is really problematic in family businesses where governance is just asleep because it's in the head of the CEO or the owner or the founder. And it wakes up when all of a sudden health crisis has come along. And now guess what? The will is going to take over as the governance model or you know, whatever. And so it's just, it's one of those things that I don't think we really pay enough attention to um, how good it is. And I also think we, we bring board members in that are just, I call them a chowder and marching society. You know, people who like to come and eat our chowder and march around the table with us and give us the throne rather than really challenge our most firmly held assumptions and beliefs. And that's what a, a really good board does. And then you talk about in the next chapter after this, the governance about leadership and boy, here's another body of knowledge, leadership. I've written or read a lot of leadership material. You never see systems thinking mentioned. No, it's just beginning to emerge. I, I actually wrote a chapter in a, an encyclopedia of leadership um, last year and I'm doing much more work. It's starting to, to gather our leadership uh, program here at Christopher Newport University. They're starting to adopt it. So we're, we're beginning to see it. Um, but it, it's way too late and, and way too um, little, in my opinion. But hopefully we'll get there. Excellent. Well, yeah, I think we're, we were talking before we went live, and I was telling you I've been listening to a lot of HBR podcasts recently, and they talking about culture. And I never hear systems thinking on HBR, but I've never heard it the way you expressed it in your book, that culture emerges from the system. Talk about that. that. That's fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, it's if you think about it, there, there is no culture there. That you, It's just an assemblage of people. But all of a sudden, they're going to start to think and act and look differently and talk differently. So your culture emerges and then people pick it up. You, We all know this. You hire somebody and they're just looking around and they see if you treat them shabbily, they're going to treat somebody shabbily. If, if you don't live your values, they're going to think that's okay. Um, and so it just becomes an aura, kind of a, a you know, a white space that um, you can't grab, you can't touch it. There's no dial. There's nothing you can do with it. It comes from the interactions of the elements um, and the and the systems and every all the occupants seeing what other folks are doing. And and so it's by osmosis that you pick it up. And and we just don't realize how powerful it is. So Willie, all this talk about changing, you know, culture, eat strategy for breakfast, and you got to work on your culture, you got to change your culture. How do you do that if a culture emerges from a system? Well, you have to go, and this is, again, the the, the whole and the parts, you got to break the parts down, and you got to go person by person and change their mental models. Todd Jick at Harvard writes wonderfully about the fact that, uh, and, and saying he said this, most people don't want to change, they don't want to be changed. So you have to change them, you have to get them to change their mental model. And what Tajik says is you have to get them just as uncomfortable with the status quo as you are, and then they'll want to change. They may not like it, but they'll, they'll see the reason to do it. And so it, it's, it's not, we would go back to our discussion about efficiency and effectiveness. We get everybody in the room and, and train them, hey, here's the new culture we want you to adopt, and we walk out and think we're done. No, you gotta, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat to change hearts and minds. And oh, by the way, the, the fastest way to get a going away party in my companies was to violate the culture. And then it's like, all right, we need to get you out of here because you don't get it. 
And we're right. just not, we're not systemic enough about it. You know, uh, when we were uh, emailing uh, about the show uh, and we warned you, we're going to ask you about this, but there's been a lot of talk about virtual work. So yep. many companies are calling back the employees, even Zoom, mm-hmm. <laughs> one right. company that let us all work remote, basically, <laughs> all that they back. want two days a week from their people, Apple, Google, I mean, the list goes on. And, you know, after reading your book and, and how a system is the interactions and the elements and the purpose, and also, you know, stories, stories are an important part of the culture, old and new. You're not getting new stories if you're not meeting face to face. And and I'm reminded, Willie, of um, Armin Algin and, and uh, Harold Demitz. They're two economists. And they wrote a paper in 1972, and they discussed team production. And they said, you don't calculate a firm's productivity by adding up the productivity of individual employees. Employees work as a team. Could this be why so many people or so many company leaders are bringing the people back in because they want those new stories, they want those interactions, and they want they want more team productivity or not just individual siloed people at home? I believe it is. And, and I think there's an honest belief and a concern that if you're not in person, you're missing a lot. They're just, as you said, it's the unspoken word. It's, it's absorbing the culture and, and you miss out on serendipity, right? It's just somebody crashing into somebody who has a good idea, et cetera. I think there's the, the cynical part of me says, well, these folks have a lease on their headquarters, so they got to bring people back in. And then the other part of the of this just, well, it's the way we've always done it, because I think if we really get creative, and some of the companies that I'm seeing are, who are getting creative about using remote workers are rethinking the way and how do we get that richness and that interaction. So I'll give you one example that I worked with a client on, and that's they had a bunch of remote workers and they're going to continue to have them. But what they were doing is they would fly them in and say, okay, you're going to be in once a month, you know, once a quarter, every other day, whatever it is. And it's just as if their their regular job in their home is identical to the office. And it's no, those are very different environments. So bring them in and set up some time for socialization the night before, the morning before. Don't just jump them right into a meeting. Let them socialize, let them get to know, and then get into the efficient work. And, and again, it's back to effective versus efficient. So I think we just have to rethink the way we look at, at our people assets. And there are some people who are even more productive when they're fully remote. And that's okay. We have to acknowledge that that works. And then there has to be, I think, an honest discussion of, but you're probably not going to be in management if you're on that track, because that's just a hard thing to do. Not not impossible, but harder. So do you think we're, we'll we'll be stuck in this hybrid situation for a while? I think we will. I really do. And, and again, I think part of that is don't wish it away. This is where, you know, the, the wonderful book, The Beautiful Constraint. Okay, if that's our constraint, let's get creative about how do we make that work? Right? How, do, how can we rethink it? Um, and, and then part of this gets at, at the, the age-old problem that I see, I'm sure you do, and that is we have so many people who say people are our most important asset. And my question for them is, okay, prove it. Show me that, and they, they don't care. If they really did prove it, if they really did walk the talk, we wouldn't have the Gallup poll results where 68% of the employees are disengaged or actively disengaged at work. 
Yeah, and and you could be you could be disengaged at work, whether you're remote or you're sitting in the coffee room, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Or your desk. Yeah, and and maybe it's because the employ the uh, employer treats them like an asset, like they own them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Rather than the exactly. human being. That's why I write about that notion of an area of freedom. You got to individually get down and talk with that person and describe that area of freedom with them that they can just run in and play in and go right up to the edges of, and then just grow that for them. But the, the challenge is if you give a really talented person a very small area of freedom, they're going to be frustrated. Right? If you micromanage them, and then conversely, if you give a not so talented person a huge area of freedom, they're probably going to be cowed by it and not be able to take advantage of it. So it's, it's very individual. And that gets back to, okay, I'm just going to be efficient. All of our salespeople are going to do exactly the same things and be treated the same way. No, they're people. <laughs> right. Um, you know, another chapter I really enjoyed was 12, where you talk about control and feedback in the system. And you, you even mentioned performance reviews are one of the most dreaded tasks in business today. We, we hate them too. We think yeah. they need to go. Yeah. Um, and you talk about a better way being success planning and Ed and I are big proponents of after action reviews yep. and, and even before action, before after or before action reviews. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the after action review as a, as a feedback mechanism? No, absolutely. And that's what I write about is, you know, if you don't have the success planning to start with, then a review doesn't make any sense because what did we agree the, the future was going to look like? And if you did have it now, an action after action can say, Hey, Ed, what worked well? What didn't? What were you responsible for? What was systemic? Did I give you the budget to, to be successful? And now it can be a, a, an intelligent discussion about what really occurred. But if I had no stalking horse that, that I started with, then it's just a, a discussion in free space. Yeah, it's like when we try and implement after action reviews in organizations, they always say, well, do you want us to talk about the work or do you want us to do it? And I, of course, like, I want you to do both. Right, right. Because how, how, if you don't reflect on what you just did, what kind of lasting lessons are you mm -hmm. going to take away? Well, and, and the other profound tr truth that I believe about system thinking is, you know, we're, you look at W. Edwards Deming finding that upwards of 94% of all the mistakes, m misunderstandings, faults, flaws, are systemic. If you brought in good people and you trust them, they want to do the right things. So why don't they? And that's because the system often leads them, your system leads them to do the wrong things, but we want to blame people and we want to blame departments and you can't have it both ways. You can't. Well, Willie, this has been really an honor. I mean, I love how you end the book. You say you, you best start believing in systems because you're in one. <laughs> so thank you so much. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home on the next segment. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now a word from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise his book is simple complexity a management book for the rest of us a guide to systems thinking we are talking to william willie donaldson and I wanted to share a couple of quotes with you, uh, Willie, that I, I thought my, and get your impact on them. One of our guests that we've had on a couple of times is Dr. Jules Goddard at a London business school. And he has one of our favorite definitions of strategy, which is strategy is the art of being able to stay one step ahead of needing to be efficient. <laughs> I love it. And his concept, and I'll get your reaction, his concept is if we're so effective, it, our efficiency honestly doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, it combines the thoughts of, of blue ocean strategy. Go to where you're not just mixing it up in, in the red ocean. It goes to Peter Drucker's famous quote, quote that all this nonsense about um, you know, catching up and, and with your competitors, if you're trying to catch up, you're already behind <laughs> by definition, right? You got to, you know, you got to go make the change that you want to see. And that's where so many organizations just fail. I'm working with them right now that the changes that are, are manifesting themselves have been at play. They just have been completely tone deaf and, and blind to them. They just refuse to go look. Um, William Gibson, the futurist, famously said, and I love this quote, Right? The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You got to go look for it. You got to go see what's happened. And then you have to not wish it away. You're going to see stuff that's scary and way too many management teams wish it away or think they've, they've already solved the problem or they go out looking for their strategy with a confirmation bias to tell them that, oh yeah, we're already doing all the right things. And, and that's that, that you humility to, to realize no, there's there's always something to learn and always something we're probably going to need to change and modify. 
So the, the second author that I wanted to bring up with you, and again, uh, I talk, we were talking during the break, he was conspicuous by absence in yeah. all of the other authors that you've had, including Margaret Wheatley, who we've had on the show, lo mm -hmm. love her work, is Peter Block. And in his early work, or earlier work, I should say, he wrote a book called The Answer to How is Yes?, and the concept is fairly simple uh, in that he says is that how based questions in business are our natural defense mechanisms against change and that this is what people do. In fact, the people who ask these how questions in meetings are considered to be smart <laughs> because they're practical, but yet they are blocking the very change that is necessary for our organization. So riff a little on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I will I'll rectify that in, in volume two. But it reminds me of John Boyd's OODA loop, right? And Boyd famously pointed out that everybody jumps in at ACT, right? OODA, for your, for your listeners, right, is, is observe the battle space. In his case, get yourself oriented and then act. And management team after management team jumps right into acting. We we get that. I talk about it. The the you know active leadership versus thought leadership. You got to quiet yourself down and go look. Uh, it goes back to the the idea of design thinking. Of, of, you know, get empathic, understand your marketplace, um, so that you're not leading with the answers. You're looking for things, and then what you could or should do becomes usually pretty obvious if you're honest with yourself and really observe well. You may not like what you have to do. But if you go through that process, I've just found that gives a tremendous clarifying um, element to, to that sort of thing. So I think it's spot on. Well, his his later thinking in the last book we talked to him about is called Confronting Our Freedom. <laughs> and he, he, he basically goes here, Willie, he says, the reason why we don't like change is because we're afraid to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's all it's all fear fear of death, and you're like, wait, in a business context, it's all fear. Yep, it's all it's just all fear of death. Well, and you know he's close because it's it's there's a chance you could be galactically wrong, right? And that's what managers don't want to do, and that goes back to that humility and goes back to allowing people to fail forward. You're gonna make mistakes, and if you want to cover them up, that's just crazy. Um, so it is a form of dying. And yeah, we've all lost a lot of money on stupid things, but we're humans. <laughs> That's what humans do, right? <laughs> right? And Which, by the way, my second book is called Estimated Time of Departure, How I Talked My Parents to Death, A Love Story. It's all about end of life. So perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that out? It is, yeah. It is. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to give that a, a read as well. Sure. Yeah, you say, and I love this quote from you, change brings with it great uncertainty unless we are very clear and very precise with our expectations and language. And that's another big thing, theme of our program is, is precision with language and even m making subtle changes to language. You know, don't call them clients, call them customers or call them m members and the importance of just those small, subtle shifts. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. It's absolutely true. Number one is common language, common mental model is, you know, you can't be looking at some picture and describing it differently. Do you remember the um, phenomenon that went through the internet with the, the, the white and gold dress that some yes. people saw mm -hmm. as black and blue? And, and I, I showed that to my students the other day and they're, they're saying, well, you, you must be an idiot. You know, how, you can't tell me that's gold and white, that's black and blue. And I said, no, that's just people looking at the world differently and processing it differently. 
And so in a company, you got to get people talking about that. What do you mean when you say red or blue and gold, right? Are we getting that right? And that takes time. And again, it goes back to this notion of not being efficient, but being effective. Uh, I want to ask you about something specific in the business world today, and it's affecting lots of organizations, big and small, and that is enterprise digital transformation. How do you, how do you think that's going? Uh, it's um, if you like comedies, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it, what I what I love about it, and I'm, I'm, my phone is ringing off the hook with it. Is what people are doing is again they're they're digitizing the silos and the silos are getting faster and faster and the cool thing about it that comes right back to systems thinking is the digital twin that you can enable could care less about your silos and about your distinctions and about your boundaries and that's the magic for management teams if you figure that out you can revolutionize your industry or your customer experience or the customer journey that your customer is going to go on, but it doesn't care at all about the, the silos and the departments. And that goes right back to the C-suite. They're the only people who can mediate those disputes in installing a digital twin and doing digital inter enterprise transformation, but we don't want to do it. We've, we've used OKRs to break down the work process. We've used, you know, lean and everything. And then we've put incentives over it and, People just aren't going to change unless you make them change and put aside this part of their rice bowl and that part of their rice bowl and change up the incentive structures. And um, back to your your point about cost accounting, you know, we, we budget it down to that particular part of the silo and you got to change all of your reporting structure. And that's just what people just don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, this has been great. We love having you on. Maybe you'll come back and talk about your next book uh, in a little bit. We'd love to have you or just continue this conversation on system thinking. It's been fa fantastic. Uh, but Ron, what do we got going on next week? Next week, Ed, we have Greg Glasgow and Catherine Meyer and their book, Disneyland on the Mountain, which was all about Walt Disney's plans to build a world-class ski resort in Mineral King down in Southern California. So looking forward to that. <laughs> I'll look forward to that conversation. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes from our conversation today with William Donaldson and how you can find his book. Also, remember, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Thank you.